This is KPFA or KPFB Berkeley or KFCF in Fresno online at kpfa.org. It's 3 o'clock, time for Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone on Cover to Cover coming up next. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money. Every Friday, happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture. The shadows out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is April 29th, 29 April 2008. I guess that means that it's still National Poetry Month. Ah, almost gone, April, the cruelest month. So almost over and along comes pretty little May. (laughs) I think it would be a nice idea to begin with a poem today before before we uh, talk tough. I've been carrying this poem around for a long time. It's by a Polish poet, Adam... Zakatuski, translated from the Polish by Claire Kavanaugh. It's called Try to Praise the Mutilated World. Try to praise the mutilated world, remember June's long days and wild strawberries, drops of wine, the dew, the nettles, that methodically overgrow the abandoned homesteads of exiles. You must praise the mutilated world. You watched the stylish yachts and ships. One of them had a long trip ahead of it, while salty oblivion awaited others. You've seen the refugees heading nowhere, You've heard the executioners sing joyfully. You should praise the mutilated world. Remember the moments when we were together in a white room. The curtain fluttered. Return in thought to the concert where music flared. You gathered acorns in the park in autumn and leaves eddied over the earth's scars. Praise the mutilated world, and the gray feather a thrush lost, and the gentle light that strays and vanishes and returns. The world is somewhat mutilated these days, but as we all know, The world will survive just fine. I'm not sure about us, but, uh, yes, poor mankind. 
poor silly mankind. We certainly seem to be shooting ourselves in the foot these days. Uh, I got all excited this week about the Reverend Jeremiah Wright. As my good engineer Veronica just said to me, yes, she said that uh, Reverend, the right Reverend Jeremiah Wright, he tore the scab off the wound. Now that's the image, folks. Americans are going to have to look at some things now. Uh, the Reverend Wright was on Bill Moyer's journal. I recommend that to you. It's on PBS. It's an hour-long show. The Reverend Wright explained that good can come from evil. He means that now we can look at some of these issues and maybe mainstream or male-stream America, as I call them, you know, can take a good look at the black church, black theology, some of our history. I'm one of those people who thought we did all that 40 years ago, my goodness. <laughs> the the program on Bill Moyer's journal is excellent It uh, historically. It takes you back to when the Reverend Wright was a uh, romantic guy with a big natural, you know, and he came to the church in Chicago, and he had 87 parishioners and... He turned the church into uh, a big deal. We had a church in Oakland, I remember. We painted it black back in 1969-70. It was wonderful. Uh, oh, those were the days. I, I remember the Merritt College down in the flatlands of Oakland. Uh, it was real, it was better than Harvard, you know. But the powers that be came and... Ripped it off, took the library up to the hill schools, uh, only lasted a few years, uh, had a lot of African scholars and Afro-American scholars, and we went around spouting our African proverbs, and my students used to come and get all their history lessons, and uh, I finally hit the wall or found that I could not quite hang in with the ideology because... Several of my teachers insisted that the women, the black women, take a back seat. Um, they, their point was, of course, that historically the brothers had not had uh, a chance to speak up. And so they said that the women must hold their tongues for a while. And, of course, I couldn't go along with all that. But I understood where they were coming from. Uh, it what is it? Uh, it's still an issue, as we know. Uh, what I liked about Bill Moyers this week was that he made a serious effort to give the audience, national audience, big chunks of the Reverend Jeremiah Wright sermons, not just those disgusting sound bites. I remember old Emma Goldman in her her uh, essay, Anarchism, Back in 1910, she wrote, the most disheartening tendency common among today's readers is to tear out one sentence from a work. Yes, when you tear out that soundbite, she writes, as a criterion of the writer's ideas or personality. And she goes on to write about how reductive that is and how it's, um, you know, the uses of propaganda. And, of course, that's what they've done to the Reverend Jeremiah Wright. They picked out the things that they 
uh, could run with. And it's going to go on for a while. But maybe, as the good reverend says, maybe some Americans will take the time to study his sermons uh, at length and to understand that he's talking about justice and he's been working at it for 40 years. He's talking about black Christianity, which is uh, not, uh, what do we call that, uh, not <laughs> not the sort of, the sort of uh, Puritan ethic that a lot of white folks were raised with. Yes, I remember that one. Uh, they taught it to me. Yes, we were in God's grace. The rich people were graced by God. I remember that one. It was the it's the the merchants' Christianity. The Dutch were very good at that. I remember. Uh, the point being that um, uh, yes, God God favored those who uh, uh, were already rich. It's interesting. Uh, it's what is it? It's a sort of a backwards arrangement. Uh, the old-fashioned Christianity, you know, the old-fashioned uh, notion that uh, Christ wanted the poor to be helped, that he wanted justice and, uh, let's call it, a little distribution of wealth. That idea (laughs) is not popular in mainstream Christianity these days. However, it seems to be making a comeback. Now, I think it would be wonderful if we could get ourselves back into uh, the mood, you know, to, what is the word, study these issues instead of just reacting in what I would call defensive positions. Most people just seem to feel guilty or ashamed, and they don't want to stop and ask the real questions. What I would like is, uh, I would like everyone in America to watch Bill Moyers and to sit down and consider these matters the way the Reverend Wright does. He's old now. He's retired just retiring now and uh there've been an awful lot of articles about the the new the new uh preachers in that church we will see um i think barack obama is in difficulty here because uh the reverend did did speak truth he did say that well barack was a politician he said he was a pastor and barack was a politician and he had to do what a politician does I'm not sure he should have done that. Maybe he should have tried to help. But that would have been, that would not have been his, his modus operandi. He, he wants to speak the truth, and I guess that is a good thing. Uh, maybe he should have said, uh, something more supportive. Um, that's hard to figure. I, I think probably he did the right thing. Uh, but Barack is what you call that. He was he began in that church as a skeptic, and so I think you know it's mean to accuse him of having the same philosophy as the Reverend Wright. But uh, obviously, this brouhaha is going to what is it? Uh, it's going to work. Um, it's going to work well for. The other guys, I wish, I wish Hillary Clinton had kept her mouth shut. I, I really do wish she had said nothing at all. It would have been more sensible. I am strangling these days on language. Uh, 
uh, it's all we can do to say one thing and not mean another. I thought the other day when I was trying to write something for publication that in in my lifetime, almost every word I use has changed its connotation and it's getting more and more difficult to write something uh, that is exact or even an absolute, you know. The language today is designed to, um, what is that, to control people, to um, frighten them. Toni Morrison says, it's designed for the estrangement of minorities, that it hides its racist plunder in its literary cheek. She says we must reject it, we must alter it, expose it. She says that today's language drinks blood, laps vulnerabilities, tucks its fascist boots under crinolines of respectability and patriotism as it moves relentlessly toward the bottom line and the bottomed-out mind. As the Reverend Wright pointed out, he was in the service for six years, <laughs> and Dick Cheney never, well, oh, dear, yes, the the patriot, three kinds of patriot, yes, the, the right or wrong patriot, the absolute patriot, and then there's the... The patriot that I consider myself to be, the scold, yes, like John Adams, the one who says, straighten up and fly right, America. Anyway, Toni Morrison says that sexist language and racist language and theistic language are all typical of the policing languages of mastery. They cannot permit new knowledge. They do not encourage the mutual exchange of ideas. We all know about the thought police. Um, the other day, I was trying to explain to a friend what is meant by the master narrative. It's the mythos, the, um, what is it, uh, the symbolism of our culture. In our culture, you know, the hero is the warrior, the fighter, the violent person. Uh, anyway, Toni Morrison writes that she is keenly aware that uh, dictators and politicians and demagogues and counterfeit journalists will not be persuaded by her thoughts. She says that there is and that there will continue to be rousing language to keep the citizens armed and arming slaughtered and slaughtering in the malls, in the courthouses, in the post offices, playgrounds, bedrooms, and boulevards, stirring, memorializing language to mask the pity and the waste of needless death. She says there will be more diplomatic language to countenance rape, torture, assassination, there is and there will be more seductive, mutant language designed to throttle women, to pack their throats like pate-producing geese with their own unsayable transgressive words. 
There will be more of the language of surveillance disguised as research, of history and politics calculated to render the suffering of millions mute, language glamorized to thrill the dissatisfied and bereft into assaulting their neighbors, arrogant pseudo-empirical language crafted to lock creative people into cages of inferiority and hopelessness. Yes. I looked at this essay that Toni Morrison wrote. It's her Nobel lecture from back in 1993. And she says so many profound things about language, about what it can and cannot do. She says that language can never live up to life once and for all, nor should it. She says language, words, can never pin down genocide, war, slavery, nor should it yearn for the arrogance to be able to do so. Its force, its felicity, is in its reach toward the ineffable. I have a lot of footnotes here about the ineffable nature of the Reverend Wright's sermons. Um, Good stuff, actually. Very good stuff. I hope that the high school teachers will find those uh, bits and pieces on Bill Moyer's journal, uh, especially the uh, sermon on the chickens coming home to roost, the wonderful sermon in which the Reverend Wright explains that those to whom evil is done do evil in return, that is, that our foreign policy may be in some degree responsible for uh, attacks on us. Uh, It's a beautiful sermon, but uh, it's obviously going to irritate the hell out of many people. Uh, (laughs) Joni Morrison writes that word work is sublime. It is generative. It makes meaning that secures our difference, our human difference, the ways in which we, we humans, are like no other life. The other day someone told me that they didn't um, like radio. They had to watch TV now. And I said, you see, radio, radio is... How you can see without pictures. That's why it's like reading. Um, You can see without the pictures. Pictures help. There's a use for pictures. But uh, radio is where you can hear yourself think. And reading is where you can stop and contemplate and meditate on what someone else is thinking. Uh, Toni Morrison writes that we die. And that that may be the meaning of our lives, but we do language. And that may be the measure of our lives. And she finishes that lecture with a long uh, speech about the young people coming in search of answers. And about the silence of the old and the sadness of old people who are blind and who are, of course, uh ashamed that they have no answers to give to the young. Uh, Young people ask her, is there no speech? 
no words you can give us to help us break through your dossier of failures, through that education you have just given us that is no education at all, because we are paying close attention to what you have done as well as to what you have said, to the barrier you have erected between generosity and wisdom. Don't you remember being young when language was magic without meaning, when the invisible was what imagination strove to see? Why don't you reach out, touch us with your soft fingers, delay the sound bite, the lesson, until you know who we are, do you so despise our tricks, our modus operandi, you cannot see that we are baffled about how to get your attention? We are young, unripe. We have heard all our short lives that we have to be responsible. What, what can that possibly mean in the catastrophe this world has become? where, as a poet said, nothing needs to be exposed since it is already barefaced. Our inheritance is an affront. You want us to have your old blank eyes and see only cruelty and mediocrity? Do you think we are stupid enough to perjure ourselves again and again with your fiction of nationhood? How dare you talk to us of duty when we stand waist-deep in the toxin of your past? You trivialize us. Is there a context for our lives? Is there no song, no literature, no poem full of vitamins, no history connected to experience that you could pass along to help us. You are an adult, the old one, the wise one. Stop thinking about saving your face. Think of our lives. Tell us your particularized world. Make up a story. Narrative is radical. It creates us at the very moment it is being created. We will not blame you if your reach exceeds your grasp. If love so ignites your words, they go down in flames, and nothing is left but their scald. Or if with the reticence of a surgeon's hands... Our words suture only the places where the blood might flow. We know you can never do it properly once and for all. Passion is never enough. Neither is skill. But try. For our sake and yours, forget your name in the street. Tell us what the world has been to you in the dark places and in the light. Don't tell us what to believe. Don't tell us what to fear, you old woman, 
blessed with your blindness. You can speak the language that tells us what only language can. That is, how to see without pictures. Language alone protects us from the scariness of things with no names. Language alone is meditation. Tell us what it is to be a woman so that we may know what it is to be a man, what moves at the margin, what it is to have no home on this place, to be set adrift from the one you knew, what it is to live at the edge of towns that cannot bear your company. Tell us about a wagon load of slaves, how they sang so softly their breath was indistinguishable from the falling snow. How they knew from the hunch of the nearest shoulder that the next stop would be their last. The children finish their speeches here in Tony Morrison's uh, Tony Morrison's Nobel lecture, and the woman, the old woman, breaks in to the silence and says, "Finally, I trust you. Ah, oh, I trust you. You have understood. You have truly caught it." Look at this thing that we have done together. Let us hope such a thing is possible. Let us hope that people can communicate. It's a nice thought. I brought in today five papers, none of which I have time to read. Mostly they're all about the black church and the days. The days, I remember them so well, back 40 years ago, when we worked so hard in Oakland to bring uh, the black church Christian consciousness to the fore. Uh, this one essay by Toni Morrison called Playing in the Dark from the Harvard University Press begins, Race has become metaphorical, a way of referring to and disguising events, forces, classes, and expressions of social decay and economic division far more threatening to the body politic than biological race ever was. <laughs> so hard to explain to people today uh, that race is now, uh, what is it, it's an empty concept. It doesn't exist, but we all know that uh, uh, there's no use saying that. We know that there is something out there called colorism, and classism that will never die. Uh, I like to call it otherism. My favorite ism is otherism. Yes, <laughs> they are not like me. Oh, yes. George Sand, back in 1848, wrote, There is only one race. Classes, she wrote, spring from brigandage. Yes, theft. Thievery, there you got it. Uh, <laughs> the next essay, yes, I have a wonderful essay here by George Bernard Shaw. 
on language and how we use that as a uh, class marker. Oh, dear. I have to get off the air now till Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. This has been Jennifer Stone. Mostly with Toni Morrison's thoughts on language. in darkness from the ones who walk in light light them up boys there's your picture drop the shadows the winter soldier the FCC hearings in Seattle, the Democratic debates, the crisis in veterans' health care, and the hearings on California's plan to spray the Bay Area with pesticides. These are just a few of the special broadcasts that KPFA has produced this year. KPFA is able to bring you specials like these only through listener support. May 6th, the beginning of our spring fund drive, is when we lay the foundation to cover probably one of the most important national elections we've seen in years. Because of your support, we can continue to have the freedom to examine issues important to you with analysis you just can't find anywhere else. So beginning May 6th, this is your chance to continue to support your free speech radio station, KPFA. I'm Amy Allison, host and producer of The Morning Show.